Good afternoon, and welcome to Keys to Securing Tomorrow's Workflows, a health system CIO media Inc. production sponsored by iGel. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health Systems CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You could send in your questions or comments or at any time, and we'll take them in the Q&A box and take a look at them. Just so you see how, how we're going to spend our time today, first, we're going to go about 35 to 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Chris Paravati, CIO at Northeast Georgia Health System. Dr. Zafar Chowdhury, SVP and CIO at Seattle Children's Hospital, and Jason Mafera, field CTO for North America with iGel Technology. And then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Lots of good stuff to discuss today. Um, Chris, let's start with you. You want to give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. My name's uh, Chris Paravati. I'm the Senior Vice President CIO at Northeast Georgia Health System. Uh, we're five hospitals, 100 ambulatory locations, several SNFs, and a few other things uh, in the North Georgia region. Very good, Chris. Thank you. Um, Dr. Chowdhury. Hello, everyone. I'm Zafar Chowdhury. I'm the Senior Vice President, Chief Digital and Information Officer at Seattle Children's, Seattle Children's Pediatric Health System in the Pacific Northwest of the country. We, we maintain 46 sites across Washington, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. Very good, Jason. Thanks. So my name is Jason Mafera. I'm the field CTO for iGel Technology. Um, my role focuses on um, working with uh, our customers and partners to build strategic relationships and really to help solve some of their most complex security challenges where the user interfaces with uh, workspaces, applications, and data. All right. Very good, Jason. Thank you. Um, Dr. Chowdhury, we're going to start with you. How are your users, uh, clinicians and non-clinicians, I don't know if you want to take them separately or together, working today, uh, please offer some scenarios that illustrate why it can be challenging to secure the devices, access, and data they're working with. Um, and then secondarily, would you say that sort of traditional approaches to security are not optimal for dealing with the scenarios that you're going to present? So I would say that the, the pandemic drove us to more of a hybrid working environment. And as part of that pandemic strategy, we at Seattle Children's moved many people to work uh, from home and closed down some of our rental facilities in the process. So whether you're a clinician or not a clinician here at Children's, you have the ability to work from a different location. We weren't really set up for that when we first started the journey, but you know, today we have 4,200, actually let me get system, 4,212 people remotely connected to our systems. So it does change your security posture. So it's not as simple as connecting point to point. You've got to think about all these people coming into your network from different locations now, uh, could be a Starbucks, could be their home, could be from the beach, right? And how are you going to maintain that security? How are you going to authenticate them? What does their identity look like? So we've been working through this over the last few years. Our current strat standard is we went from VPN, which pretty much opened the network to everything, somewhat scary, to a more point-to-point zero-trust solution. So we use a zero-trust solution across our own 
whole organization to connect people into the network from from their device to the application that they use. And we do all the checks in the background to make sure their device, whether it's ours or theirs, whether they have the right updates on their device, whether they've got the right security levels on their device, antivirus, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's an evolution that we've seen with clinicians unhappy at times, right? Because we went from single factor to dual factor authentication, multi-factor authentication. You know, nobody likes to do that, including me, actually. But the reality <laughs> is you, you have to authenticate. You have to have a smartphone. You have to click on a couple of things before you get to where you need to be. And, of course, if you're a clinical person, you'll know that the more clicks you have, the more time it takes, and therefore that impacts the work that you do. But from a clinical perspective, we... Most of our clinicians are now back on campus, but we're still running some from remote sites, especially for like telehealth visits, et cetera. And that's not uncommon. Okay, very good. Uh, we'll get into more stuff there um, in a few minutes. Chris, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, uh, a similar similar experience, right? Going into COVID, we um, were at Epic Shop and and we deliver everything across Citrix. So being able to extend our Citrix desktop into remote access, not terribly difficult. Uh, same challenges, multi-factor authentication, uh, you know, password challenges and, you know, not being able to save your passwords and uh, blocking, uh, you know, certain types of data, containerizing our data on those workstations gets pretty complex. The one thing that um, we're still working through in our Citrix desktop delivery, we had not put audio and, and video, right? And and now audio and video is essential. Uh, so now we're working through how we're incorporating that component in. Now we had we had somewhat addressed that either through our EMR in video visits. Um, we set up uh, really uh, effective means to do that either virtually or on-prem. Uh, and then we also put in, uh, migrated to uh, Office 365, uh, implemented Teams, got SharePoint, you know, really down those collaboration sites. And that really addressed things. I think the this concept of, you know, we're going to go back to the office um, is, is, is not really going to happen. At least it's not going to happen for us. Uh, I go over to uh, where the revenue cycle team sits and all of those support services, and that building is largely empty. Um, the one other thing that I would, you know, and, and maybe I'm covering a spectrum is, uh, you know, we still in IT meet with our customers in first person. And and our primary reason behind that is I believe that uh, video conferencing tends to create more of a, a transactional conversation versus sometimes problem solving and, and creativity. And uh, so that's, there are some guidelines that we've put around that. All right. Very good. Again, we'll get into more of your answer. We'll dig in a little more in a few minutes. Uh, Jason, your thoughts. Yeah. So I think, you know, what I've, what I just heard is very common to what's going on out in the industry. I think, you know, the hybrid work component makes it more challenging and it really requires, you know, some of these new ways of handling these things, especially when it comes to the devices that are moving outside of the organization. 
and making sure that they're still enterprise manageable, controllable, and securable. And so I think, you know, the workflows that were described are exactly in line with what I think is happening in the industry. And what I've personally seen is that there's also a trend to take and make that endpoint more secure and then to move some of those computing resources either on-prem or into more of a hybrid mode where they're spread across on-prem and, um, you know, the hyperscalers or uh, cloud service offerings. So that further makes it more complex to make sure that, you know, you can really secure and manage all of that access. So I think it's very much in line. So, uh, Jason, just to follow up, uh, you're seeing movement on-prem. I mean, I, I've read a couple articles recently that there may be some pullback from the cloud um, because yeah. of the spending. Um, the people are, are getting a little scared off by some spending. There's actually some some workloads coming back on-prem rather than just one total everything moving in one direction. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think there was very much a movement to try and get out of the data center business over time and push a lot of those services to the cloud. And I've, I've seen exactly the same thing where that's moved in a direction and then you know the cost and expense involved in it has started to become a challenge. And there's been this kind of spring back a little bit to bring some of it back on-prem and look at you know the ROI of both those models. I think there's some stuff that will continue to be in the cloud where it makes sense. Uh, hosted EMRs, that sort of thing. Uh, but what I've also heard is that there's also a trend to look at disaster recovery and look at it from a perspective of, you know, location. It used to be that only certain locations were kind of, uh, you know, potentially in a disaster zone, if you will. And with the changes that have been happening over time, that's more and more places. And what I've heard most recently is that folks are trying to split things to a degree. And, you know, there's some new technologies that have come on stream that are helping to, I guess, bridge that gap. You know, like uh, Microsoft Azure now has the ability to split those workloads between their cloud service and on-prem in this kind of converged infrastructure. So you can have a single management layer, but have the resources actually distributed between those locations. And so that was something that was really interesting to see that kind of change in dynamic. Interesting. And I guess it's a disaster recovery angle there to not put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Exactly. Okay. Very good stuff. All right. Um, next question. Um, Jason, we're going to start with you. Talk about, uh, this is some for some, my education, because I get lost here uh, sort of in the weeds. Uh, you know, I'm, I know enough to be dangerous, and then I and then I get lost pretty quick. But talk about endpoint slash device management. From what I understand, they're the same thing. And then there's identity management. I've heard people say that identity is everything. It's a new perimeter, right? Identity is everything, and that security has to be pushed out to the endpoints. So these both true? Are they the same thing? Uh, help me out. Help me understand. Yeah, Jason. I think they're slightly different, but they're definitely interrelated. So. You know, if you look at the trend towards everyone talking about zero trust and how that starts to apply, you know, it's that model where, you know, you kind of trust nothing, right? Um, not kind of a, you know, trust and then verify, but more of a never trust, always verify mm -hmm. sort of approach. And with that new paradigm, I think it's really critical 
the identity layer becomes the first point of that journey, if you will, right? You, you need to absolutely validate the user and their identity before you give them access to anything. And at that point, you then get access to a device. There's always a device involved, right? Because it's what's going to kind of bridge between the person and the stuff that they're accessing, whether it's a desktop, an application, um, just data, whatever it is, that device is always in the middle. So you have to not only secure the device and that access, but also the user themselves so that you know, you know who you're interacting with, who's accessing that data. And that's kind of where the whole journey starts, at least in my opinion, from you know zero trust uh, approach. Dr. Chaudhry, any any thoughts there? As you mentioned, you're on sort of a zero trust journey, taking that approach. Any thoughts there? So for us, it's it started from understanding the different users and use cases. So we first categorized the types of users that we have, whether they're clinical, non-clinical, somewhere in between. And then based on that, you create a framework that says, you know, what do those users actually require? whether they're inside our organization or outside our organization. And then once you've got that sort of defined, you then take a look at, well, once if they're in, how should they be authenticated? If they're out, how should they be authenticated? So when we started this journey, we were authenticating people who were outside the organization to get everything that was inside the organization. We then learned that actually I, just as the CIO, don't need access to everything. And therefore, maybe my relationship should be between access and the application layer. That's how you start moving towards that zero trust model. And then the device itself has changed, right? The endpoint device, the traditional model for the endpoint device was load up something like antivirus, then check to see if that antivirus is up to date and et cetera, et cetera. And if it isn't, deny the access. We've moved away from that. We're now using tools that aren't sort of antivirus-based, but tools that do different kinds of checks um, and, and scan the device versus just looking for a, a pattern, which is just antiviral uh, in nature. And that has sort of improved the experience that we get. In addition to that, we've tried to add some automation as well. So when you join our organization and you cat categorize as a particular user, you are then given certain access, but we don't manually do that anymore. That's that's automated the access to systems like Epic and others. And it's, and vice versa, if you leave, that access is systematically removed uh, as well. So it really starts with, you know, this really isn't about technology. It's about sitting down with these stakeholders and saying, okay, what problem are you really trying to solve here? And working with those clinicians, non-clinicians to say, how do you solve that problem? Then you've got lots of smart IT people who will layer on top of that and say, here's five or six or eight different ways we can skin that cat. And then we test it. So that's why we've evolved from what I would call really horrible connectivity in, in the old user password way, open everything up, to then saying, no, actually, we shouldn't be doing that. We should look at this differently. But that's an evolution over time. And of course, the, the running joke here is you can never spend enough on security and you're only as good as the next person trying to attack you. And so it's very expensive 
to do these things. And in a climate where healthcare is facing some economic challenges, then makes it difficult to do. A quick follow-up there. You talked about automating the access someone gets based on their role, probably. So you don't have to figure out every person. I interviewed a CISO recently um, who said, yeah, we do that. And that's an important place to start. But there are countless exceptions to that. So you need human beings to adjust almost you know, a lot of people are going to come out and say, well, yes, but I do this and that, especially with clinicians where they may not have, they have privileges. There are a bunch of places. Anyway, uh, do you see that as well being that you start, start with automation, but then there are going to be quite a bit of exceptions in when it comes to access? Yeah. So I sort of apply the rule of 80, 20, right? 80% of the work you do can be automated and that helps, but you're not going to get away from the subject matter experts. So the final 20% where you have these exception cases, depending on who they are in your organization, yes, will require human intervention and human overview. But when we used to do this 100% in a human way, we were having people start in our organization that didn't have access to their applications for weeks because there was just so many tickets that those humans had to work with. With that automation, 80% get solved through the automation, and then my people can focus on solving the other 20%. And of course, in today's climate, you don't get more FTEs either. You tend to be told to reduce those FTEs. So it's a balance. And, you know, obviously, we're in this world of automation and all this exciting stuff. But at the same time, there is a reason why we have subject matter experts. Very good. Chris, your thoughts? You know, you, you kind of touched on this idea of role-based security. Um, and, and I kind of split it in two ways. In, in the application side, role-based security can be somewhat very convenient. Um, I'm a nurse in the emergency room. I'm a nurse in an OR theater. I'm a nurse or a clinician in an ambulatory theater. In communications, though, knowing what role they're in today is super important. So I might be a cardiologist. I might be an interventionalist. And I may be in the lab today, and tomorrow I may be the cardiologist on call for the emergency department. And so what we've done is we've built some additional mobility layers to capture those roles and then their communication preferences, uh, as well as um, creating that that kind of communication ecosystem. So. Um, once upon a time, nurses used to walk around with an index card and they'd say, hey, what extension are you at today? Are you charge nurse? Yeah, I'm the charge nurse. Um, or they would call a call center and say, hey, I need the cardiologist on call or I need the nephrologist on call. In in our system, uh, we built, you really, all you do is say, I need the charge nurse on S4D. And that person is logged in as that role. Mm-hmm. And their communication, whether it's text or voice or or some other means, will go to that device. They log into that that device initially. They actually tap and go, um, and we provision that. And then that same exact experience is for our providers. But providers don't want another phone, right? So we've got to also support that BYOD device, that idea that they could log in um, they could say, yeah, I'm, I'm the rounding hospitalist for this unit. Um, and then everyone can see that. So that's 
it's a combination. Sometimes role-based security works really good. You know, if you're talking about Workday or an ERP system or or even Epic. But then when I need to know specifically who is doing this activity, this idea of that I could be the charge nurse one day and tomorrow I could be a rounding nurse. And on Thursday, I could be working in an ambulatory um, post-acute clinic. It's the same thing for providers. So that's where that Anthony, that's where that we tie that piece together. Very good, Jason. Thoughts? What are you? What are you hearing? Yeah, so I think excellent points, right? What the way I think about it is, it starts with the authentication pieces, right? And then those need to intersect the device, and then be evaluated for what level of access you get. So you get to this role-based access. You need to be granular in that approach. And then most recently, I've seen it become even more adaptive to say, okay, you've proven that you're Jason, you're coming in from this place, how do we rate that place? And now how do we adapt your access based on you know, the risk that's involved in you accessing from that place, from that device in that way? And so all these things kind of tie together to really determine, especially when you're remote and you've got these hybrid sort of scenarios where applications can be on-prem, they can be in the cloud, they can be a mixture. You really need to be able to make those dynamic decisions, you know, at the point of access. And sometimes, you know, you may require more authentication to happen based on, you know, the risk that's found there to really make sure it's Jason and he can get that access into that system. So I think it's, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, if you will. And I think it's continuing to evolve to get us to a place where we can really, you know, confidently provide that access and also reduce the risk associated with it, you know, to uh, mitigate the the breaches and challenges that come with that. So, Well, let me ask all of you this. Uh, what's the hard part here, Jason? It sounds complicated. It, it sounds like uh, a lot of work, at least on the front end, to get all these roles straightened out and people assigned roles and to, to have the flexibility you're talking about built in. It sounds like a tremendous amount of work up front before you maybe reap the benefits of having set it all up properly. Does that make sense? What's the hard part here? Yeah, well, I think it it, go, it goes back to what uh, Zopper was talking about, that, you know, it's really about what you're trying to deliver and figuring out, you know, before you apply the technology to it, what are the workflows? What are the use cases? You know, that sort of, um, you know, business level decision that you have to start to make and put together before you can even figure out which technologies to apply and where and how to apply them, right? To me, it all goes back to, you know, risk mitigation ultimately at the end of the day. How do you manage that risk? Because all of those interactions are going to have some level of risk. And it's really about, you know, security to me is just a function of risk mitigation ultimately. Very good. Chris, your thoughts? What's yeah, I think, part? you know, I guess the thing is, is uh, being deliberate with your architecture and not making it so complex that you can't support it and troubleshoot it. So we really try to be very consistent on our, how are we going to deliver applications on what type of equipment and what user experience are we trying to create on that? And, you know, any distraction any, you know, any workstation, phone, device, information distraction is a distraction that is is taking away from that being in the moment with that patient or with that clinician or in that decision making. 
And so we really want that to be as intuitive and as consistent as possible. I don't need a physician rounding and they have a workstation issue or they can't place an order. I mean, or they can't see something or their information is not available. It's just the environment is so hectic to be able to have a, a technology issue is, is unacceptable. And so the being deliberate about your architecture and consistent is, is, is paramount. Dr. Chaudhry? Yeah, so I'd say our strategy is look at the identity, look at the device, look at the environment, look at the network, look at the application workload and the data that's being transacted. That, that's all solved through a technology layer. But most importantly, it's about continuous verification. Always verify access all the time for all the resources. And I like to say our job here is to limit that blast radius, right? So the biggest risk to any organization is the people that you have because they always try and bypass the things that you try to put in place. Our job and my team, my job is to make sure that we provide that seamless access but in the background, we're always checking, double checking, making sure nothing is getting in. And if it does, that's when your blast radius expands and then you're in serious trouble. So that's how I sort of look at it. You, you used the word seamless. And before you mentioned about clicks and even uh, you as a clinician uh, might not have the greatest tolerance for wasted time and well, what you might consider wasted time, even though it's for a purpose. Um I assume that you do everything possible to put in the security that needs to be put in without making it onerous on the users. So tell me more about that. Yeah, so the key is we in, tech, in technology will come up with a workflow that says this is how it's supposed to work. The best, the best way to validate that before you launch it, though, is to validate it with the customer that you're serving, mm -hmm. right? So... Yes, I could architect something. My engineers could say, oh, this is so easy because we're technologists at heart. But you need to test that with those customers. If the customers say, no, this is so totally terrible, then we have to flex and, and try again. So over time, we fine-tuned that experience by constantly asking the question, is this seamless enough? Now, of course, we're never going to get to a point, maybe in the future we will get to a point where you won't have to input anything to authenticate, but we're not there yet. So reduce those number of clicks if you can, but never trust the technologist to provide a mm. solution. Always ask the customer, here I have three options. Which option do you think works best for you the way in which you work? When they pick that option, you launch and try it whole scale, at which point you get less blowback is, is my experience. Chris, same approach. Get get these kind of things tested. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, until you put it in the wild, um, <laughs> frankly, you don't know. We're testing some iGel solutions with with our application delivery, and I literally have a physician rounding, a, a hospitalist rounding, and I have an ambulatory, a primary care physician uh, using that today. That's just our first round of testing, just to to see, um, you know that everything's working as consistently and and we find stuff right stuff that works in the lab we get out there yeah you know maybe not quite as well as as we thought but that that's the last mile right is always it's getting that validation jason your thoughts around uh 
not inhibiting user workflow. You know, you, you got to put the security in, but you don't want to make everybody mad. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I agree with everything that's been said. It really is uh, a matter of coming up with what you think are the best workflows possible and then validating and testing them out with the folks that are going to use them every day. Because if they're not accepting of them, they will look for workarounds, right? And then it essentially defeats some of the security you're trying to deliver. From my perspective, it's always a matter of trying to find the most transparent way to deliver that security so it doesn't impact the person using it. Make it as seamless for them as possible. And make sure that, you know, over time, IT and the business are going to make decisions to move things, change things, adopt new technologies. And any place that you can make it transparent to the user is always a win, right? It, there should be flexibility to move workloads around without changing the user experience, making mm -hmm. it completely transparent to them so they never really have to be retrained. And once they adopt a way of doing their work, they can continue to, you know, use that same sort of workflow without interruption. Very good. All right. Next question. Talk about, uh, and, you know, I don't know where we are on, on the whole BYOD thing, but um, let's talk about that. You know, if one of you said nobody wants another phone. Uh, I think my, my wife's a nurse practitioner. I think she's got a couple of phones in her bag. Um, talk about the challenge of securing company-issued devices versus personal devices and your policy on allowing clinicians and, and folks to use their personal devices for work. Um, Chris, let's start with you. So we do have a strong BYOD um, policy. Um, we want our physicians to bring in their own devices, use their own devices. Um, you know, no one's going to like it, but I do put a an MDM on that device to containerize my apps and be able to remove those cleanly. Um, we're fortunate that we don't have another health system in this immediate area that's asking for that. Generally, that's widely accepted over uh, issuing another phone. We have some apps, um, some devices like, you know, some of the notepad solutions that will integrate with Office. We don't we don't uh, integrate those. It's just not worth the, the effort. Um, but all of our mobile stack, we offer um, a containerized solution that enables uh, the phone calling, the text messaging, secure and unsecure, uh, we mask those numbers so the providers really like that they can call and follow up with a patient and doesn't have their personal cell phone. Uh, it will ring back to uh, to their clinic uh, and we can set that up, set up uh, communication preferences. Um, it's it's a vital part. I don't I don't think you can avoid bring your own device. Uh, so we we kind of lean forward into it. Chris, do you have the, if you have clinicians that say, listen, I don't, I want to work. I want you to issue me a phone. I don't want stuff on my phone from work. I just don't want that. I mean, do you get requests like that? I, occasionally we've had a few. It's a, it's a small number, believe it or not. Actually, more often it says, gosh, could I get, you know, can you just give me my email and, and, you know, our communication platform or mobile platform? And the answer is yes, if you'll let us install the MDM. Uh, and if the answer is no, then you'll need to provide your own phone. We do not provide um, outside of clinicians. We do not provide phones. We don't provide a phone stipend. Uh, so if you choose not to get uh, email to your your phone, for example, then uh, I guess you'll 
carry that laptop around. Um, it's just, you know, I can't, I can't leave it unsecured. I can't leave it on uncontainerized. Um, there's just too many, too many variables there that it's too difficult to, to secure. So we, we blanket one solution across all user, all user bases. Dr. Chaudhry, what's your approach? So we have a, a similar approach. Yes, if you use your device, we will secure the device with an MDM solution. What we found in practice, though, is there is still a level of resistance for people to store, uh, have their MDM on their device. They still, there's still a feeling that we will be seeing more on the device than, you know, what people would like us to see. Potentially, even though we do a lot of communication to say this is the purpose of the tool. At the same time, we've seen such a huge uptake in mobility across the org that I, I'm a true believer of a one-to-one relationship with a device whilst you're working in the clinical setting. And so if somebody needs a device, we give them a device for their shift is the strategy. So they can use their own device, but they choose not to because they feel a level of paranoia. We will make a device available for that level shift. But, you know, there is that limitation then. If you if you permanently need a device and we give it to you, then now you've got, then you're the doctor with the tool belt that has three devices plugged onto it. And that's that's a that's another complaint that people have as well. So you can't really solve it you know, there's multiple ways to, to skin the cat, but the reality is you're either going to be a physician who uses your own device or you're going to use one of our devices that end up with multiple devices. Some say they, they prefer that because then they know that after a shift, they're not going to answer that device because it's a work mm-hmm. device mm-hmm. versus using their own device and their private number is out there. The other challenge, you know, certainly I've seen this personally, right? So I use a single device. It's my personal device everybody seems to have my cell phone number and therefore what ends up happening is i become tech support for everything because people will call me the escalation will come to me doesn't matter whether it's a saturday or sunday or a text message and the operator then sometimes even gives it out to vendors and then i get calls directly so that's probably the downside to it but the upside is i'm only carrying a single device and so i think it's a mix and match model i think the clinicians that are more Gen Z are more accepting of the different tools to secure their device. I think some of the older physicians are still remain paranoid. And actually, interesting enough, I have still have physicians who have flip phones, uh, and therefore you're not really you're not really securing anything, right? Because you're not getting any anything on there that's of any real value besides a you know a text. So. Yeah, you can still text in in our organization to ask a question because that's all you have in terms of capability. That's great. Flip phones. Love it. Anthony, one other comment. Um, For our phones that are issued by us, um, we have a provisioning solution where they they check that phone out as theirs. So if that phone disappears, we track it right back to that individual. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, we don't put SIM cards in our, in our phones. Uh, so they're, they're really, once they come off the network, uh, they're, they're pretty much useless. Very good. Jason, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's 
it's a challenge that you know has been here for a long time, right? And it really does come down to how people feel about it more than anything and how well they're educated on what's really happening with that device, especially if it's a personal device that's now being used for, you know, corporate access. And so, you know, I think the technology has evolved quite a bit where there's there's really good separation now where it's not kind of taking control of the entire device. It's more applying policy and then containerizing the things that are used for work. What I've seen personally is, you know, the ability to even, you know, revoke or stop that access. Like, let's say getting access to your email, if your device doesn't have the latest updates from Apple or Google, that sort of thing. And I think that does help to enhance security over time. You know, it seems to happen at the most inadvertent times when, you know, you don't necessarily want to update your phone and you lose access. But, um, you know, overall, I think it does help from a security perspective. And so, you know, I think it's something that continues to evolve. I think the days of giving out devices and having multiple devices will come to an end in the not too distant future because it just doesn't necessarily make sense, right, to have that if you have technology that will maintain the separation between work and personal. And, you know, it's just about people getting comfortable with it over time, like a lot of technology. So, Very good. Very good. All right. We have a question from our, our good friend and industry legend, Bill Spooner, um, who I got to see recently at one of the conferences. Budget question. If a provider or team member uses her personal device rather than company assigned, do you provide a stipend towards its expense? I'm guessing that is a big fat no, but uh, I could be wrong. Dr. Chaudhry? So it is a big fat no. We don't provide a we don't provide a stipend. But if you need a device, we will provide you a device. So what you tend to find is people will take a device and then use it during work hours uh, versus versus using or stipend towards their own device. And I think the world shifted in terms of stipends. Right? The reality is, people say, "Well, I'm using my phone and it's using up." my minutes and text, but those are usually unlimited and free. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's I don't know difficult. when the last time somebody had to watch their minutes, right? That's right. That's a difficult scenario. Chris. Yeah. That's a big fat no on, yeah. on the stipend. Uh, you know, if somebody asks for a device, we're going to get them what they need when they're here at work. Yeah. Uh, and we'll, you know, so for example, on our mobile platform, uh, if you need an iPad, you need an iPhone, we'll 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 issue you one. We'll pick it up at the end of the shift. It's not it's going to be worthless outside of the building. Uh, and and that's kind of our strategy. We we want people to be effective. We want them using the tools. Uh, we just, uh, you know, I, I kind of equate having a cell phone to having business attire. Um, I wouldn't show up to work without clothes on and wouldn't show up to work without my cell phone. Bill Bill wrote, uh, "Thanks, you cheapskates," with a smiley face. That's right. <laughs> Kill that. Well, I'll also throw out that any stipends you receive from your organization become a tax a taxable expense, right? So, if we give you a stipend, whatever that might be, well, if you're with Mint Mobile, probably fifteen dollars a month, you still have to pay tax on that. So, right. you know, is it really worth you receiving that stipend? Listen, I'm not going to use all my minutes on my flip phone for you guys. Yeah, okay? don't do that. 
right. not using a burner phone, are you? No, no, no. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, we're going to go to my favorite part, the Ask a Co-Panelist section, and see what you guys want to learn from each other. Um, Jason, why don't you go first? Do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Uh, sure. So let's let me start with uh, Chris. Um, so, you know, I guess based on everything we've talked about, you know, how do you see your overall kind of security posture and the ability to mitigate risk with all the things that you put in place? Are there still areas that you feel like you need focus on? Is it something that, you know, over time you're continuing to, uh, you know, reduce risk in different areas? Like wh where do you guys focus now? As yeah, you're on that it, journey. It, it frankly, it's it's layers, right? It's it's uh, you know, I was thinking about when we were talking, I was on vacation, I was out of the country, and I got a call from the CTO and he said, Hey, your laptop is in the Caymans and uh it's attempting to log into the network. And I said, Yeah, I'm trying to do some email with it while I have a cup of coffee, right? So even recognizing IPs and, and country IPs um all the way down to that device is super important. I think the other thing that most health systems have come to recognize that disaster recovery is not really a term that 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 we really plan to anymore. Disaster recovery used to be my data center caught on fire and I need another data center, right? Now it's uh, I've had a security incident and I need to contain that data center and I need to move to another and it's really business continuity. Uh and that's where you'll you'll see uh, frankly, uh, the cloud services provide a superior business continuity solution, uh, and and that's a focus for us, and it will continue to be. Um, you don't move to the cloud just to move to the cloud. You don't do move to the cloud because you think you're going to save money. Mm -hmm. uh, you believe you're going to provide a higher reliability product with better business continuance, um, but that takes a lot of architecture too, right? We're moving compute uh, not just out of our core, but all the way out to the edge. Right. And and so there's it's retooling and thinking about those security variabilities. Sure. Very good. Uh, Dr. Chowdhury, you want to give your thoughts on that? So for me, I would say every day is a, a worry day around yeah. security. I think the bad actors seem to get better on a daily basis, even though, you know, you have a day where you think, hey, we might be ahead of this thing. The next day you feel like you're behind because whatever initiatives you put into place, whatever investments you make, somebody's always one step ahead of you. I think the other challenge I see on an ongoing basis is trying to sell the value proposition of the security work that we do to the health system on a daily basis, because it's a really, really big number of zeros and it's all hidden. And you never really see the value of it till something actually happens. And that's difficult in today's climate. So you're sort of trying to juggle and balance. I like to say the job is juggling eggs, right? So I just hope one of those eggs don't drop. And that's the daily, the daily churn that the team goes through around maintaining that security posture in our organization. I'm sure many others. Excellent. Very good. Chris, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Sure. Uh, Dr. Chaudhry, what's, what's uh top two things you're working on these days? What's what's eating your your time? So certainly, cost improvement programs is top of the list for us as an organization because we are not generating the positive revenue that we were used to as a pediatric organization. And 
The second thing that probably worries me the most that I'm working on is how am I going to manage the expectations of the folks that keep coming to me to say, when are we launching AI and how is that going to save us, right? I just don't know how to balance that. So those are the two things I, that worry me that we're working on. Very good. Excellent. Uh, okay. Um, Dr. Chaudhry, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, I think I'm going to put the same question back to Chris, right? Well, yeah, what are the two I, things you're working on? And thank you for, uh, you know, you kind of gave me maybe a little bit of validation, but just thinking through, um, I describe it as governance. It's about as unsexy as I could describe it, but really, how are we prioritizing the most important work? I've got, a, you know, a landslide of projects come at us and every single one of them are a great idea. But what is the most essential strategic priorities and what are the things that are not strategic that will if we don't address will really create a lot of technology debt and so there's this balance of being a good part of the senior team and and uh you know making sure you're cutting budget and not asking for things that are non-essential but at the same time it's like well I still got to do enough that I don't get this pile up um, that that really creates a bigger problem. So that's that's one big focus area for for me. Um, the second is uh, we're really retooling our population health strategy, and uh, so we're looking at uh, really some big platform changes. That's probably the other big area that's consuming my time. Very good. All right. Um... Question to uh, both of you, Dr. Chaudhary, let's start with you. Um, both of you are extremely security savvy. Uh, neither one of you is the CISO. Um, you're both the CIO. So my question is, as a CIO, how how much do you need to be in the, I don't want to say in the weeds? How, how deep do you need to go into security? Um, what's your best advice there and, and what kind of relationship do you want with either your CISO, if you have one or whoever you have as a heading up security, Dr. Chaudhry. So as a person leading the technology group in any health system, I believe that you do need to be plugged into what's happening in the security world, not only in your own organization with your own security chief and in many organizations the CISO reports to the CIO, that's certainly the case in my organization, but at the same time, you know, keeping your eye on the on the pulse of what's actually happening in, happening in the industry and dark web as well. So, no, you don't need to know all the fine detail of how option A authenticates to option C, but you do need to have to know the, the, the national and international trends as to what's happening. So, I quite frequently will look at um, go on to the dark web and see what people are talking about to try and inform myself as to what could be the next thing. Mm -hmm. Very good. Chris? Yeah, I, I think I need to be in enough depth of the security to understand the risks and help the organization make decisions about those investments. And frankly, I am the leader of that discussion for the senior team, right? Mm -hmm. So just as we think about every other risk that an organization is presented with, 
I carry the risk of the security posture. And so it's my responsibility to sift out what are the most important vulnerabilities for that team to be aware of and for them and to be as transparent as possible about the scale of that risk. Um, I have the fortune of having a CTO that comes from uh, a large um, conglomerate that that also uh, developed military equipment internationally. Uh, and he was a CISO for that organization for a number of years. Uh, so he brings a certain level of of black ops to my my security domain, and and frankly, um, is far more expertise in this space than I am. So he can he he kind of comes at it from a different lens because you know we're we're kind of in this healthcare bubble, but he comes from a multinational military hardware company company man, manufacturer and so he comes at it from a completely different lens um and uh it it's frankly it's fascinating fascinating it's it's frightening um i don't think we fully as a as a as a a consumer and as as a a citizen of this country that we completely understand the cyber wars that that are taking place. Um, and, uh, you know, frankly, I, I think it, it's well understated what's, what's happening internationally. Jason, uh, when you're out there talking to customers, prospects, you hear stories, things like that about the relationship between CIOs and CISOs. Do you have any thoughts on what you think makes for a good working relationship? Yeah, I think it's really about communication more than anything. Right. It's making sure that the right level of detail is shared. So um, the folks that are leading those conversations, the CIOs in this case, you know, have the information they need to be able to make the best decisions. Right. And so for me, what I hear is that, you know, being able to communicate that effectively and a lot of times in not, you know, maybe the most specific of technical terms is really valuable and useful to be able to drive those business level conversations. Very good. All right. One more audience question. Um, Chris, let's start with you. Do you have any favorite IT metrics that you present to the executive team or the board, a scorecard perhaps, to demonstrate IT security value and or high volume of projects? So uh, a couple things that I do. One is um, we bring in a third party to do uh, penetration tests. We do internal penetration tests all the time. Um, but uh, we present that to our audit and compliance board uh, and to the senior team. And it's uh, very transparent. Here's the the good and the bad and where we need to focus. And here's what risks are presented. Um, I do that because um, I think it's important for us to be measured by a third party and validated. Um, I think it gives us additional credibility. Uh as it relates to IT metrics, um, you know, there's there's definitely different things that we present for different forms, but particularly our um, our project performance. Uh, what are we doing on projects? Where's our priorities? What's our demand? What's our forecasting? Uh, what's the number of hours that we're burning in those in those categories? Um, are things that they my leadership team tends to focus on? Uh, Frankly, running IT and managing support and doing upgrades and doing and doing all those things and doing them well is somewhat table stakes. 
uh, it's expected that I'm running those things and running them tightly. Dr. Chaudhary? So we have a similar approach. Yes, we use third parties for some external metrics, but uh, over the course of the years, I've worked with the different boards that we have to have a single, we have a single slide report out for how IT is performing and a single slide report out as to how security is performing uh, on, on a monthly basis. And that was actually agreed in partnership with the different boards. So we went through multiple iterations and I tried to target the information on those single slides at sort of the eighth grade level. Because at the end of the day, security, things like security can be so confusing to people. And what do boards really need to know? How much risk are we exposed to here? And how are you mitigating that risk? And sometimes you, we're good in technology at bamboozling people with our terminology. So <laughs> we tried to bring it down to the level that people can understand. And that's taken multiple iterations, uh, but I think we're in a good place. So I don't do a lot of papers to the board. It's usually two slides. This is this is the state of the union for us as an IT service. And that's been what we've seen. All right, we're almost out of time. Jason, I want to give you last word, final piece of advice for the audience, people dealing with the topic we've discussed today. What's your best piece of advice? Wow. So I guess I would say, um, you know, the world has continued to evolve, right? With everything that we see with the changes with hybrid work and infrastructure, um, you know, I think it's just more important than ever to look at the strategy on, you know, at least from my perspective, how you protect that interface between the users and what they access mm -hmm. and look at everything that's out there and available to, uh, you know, reduce the risk and, you know, deliver on these new uh, hybrid scenarios and something that, you know, is really built for, you know, this new world, really purpose built to uh, deliver these sort of capabilities. So. I think that's what I would leave everyone with is, um, you know, look towards how things have changed and, you know, new technologies that can help to provide better security and um, manageability and, you know, um, user workflow experience, essentially. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today. Regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. If you get a, um, you'll receive an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel today, Chris Paravati, Dr. Zafar Chaudhry, and Jason Mafara. I want to thank IGEL for sponsoring and making it possible and you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.